Welcome to the new podcast episode created for the research project Humanitarian Diplomacy, assessing policies, practices and impact of new forms of humanitarian action and foreign policy. Our research project is based at Christian Mikkelsen Institute, CMI, and led by research professor Antonio de Laure, and the project is funded by the Research Council of Norway. My name is Salla Turunen, and I am a doctoral researcher currently investigating the humanitarian diplomacy conducted at the United Nations. Accordingly, in this episode, we delve a little deeper into the humanitarian diplomacy conducted at the heart of the coordination of the UN's humanitarian affairs. Joining me on this journey today is Ute Kolis, who has held various senior positions in the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA. As head of office, uh, she was deployed to Chad from 2009 onwards, then to Ivory Coast in 2012, and from 2014 onwards, she continued to Zimbabwe and Mali for the following six years. Ute also held the position of Deputy Head of Office in the Regional Office for West Africa upon its creation. She holds a master's degree in pedagogy and she is the mother of a daughter and she has also brought up five other children as foster kids in her home. Today Ute continues to work as a, as a free consultant specializing in gender, governance, mediation, training and facilitation. A very warm welcome to the Humanitarian Diplomacy podcast, Ute. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. The sun is shining here in Portugal, where I'm sitting right now. And I'm looking forward to our discussion. Excellent. Excellent. Very much uh, likewise. So if we start on the very um, basic level of the concept in itself, from where do you stand? Uh, how do you understand or define the term humanitarian diplomacy? Well, as a matter of fact, I think there are four elements that we have to take into consideration when we talk about humanitarian diplomacy. The first one is that we as humanitarians are there to convince leaders, leaders that have decision-making powers to adhere not only to uh, principles and international humanitarian law, but make decisions that facilitate humanitarian action. Uh, the second one is to negotiate presence of humanitarians in areas that are held sometimes by different opposing groups in areas of conflict, um, including not only the presence of humanitarians, but also negotiating number three, access of these humanitarians uh, to areas where people are, for instance, displaced. And this access negotiation should also include access of the population to basic social services. So the access issue is two-faced. It's for humanitarians to reach uh, people in need, but it's also for people in need to reach basic social services. And then finally, uh, to promote and facilitate international humanitarian law, human rights law, and adherence to the humanitarian principles. Um, I think those are the four elements uh, that I would underline if we talk about humanitarian diplomacy. Great. 
I think that is a very good uh, detail level of answer as well. And what you are also alluding to is that humanitarian diplomacy would happen on different levels as well. So there are these concrete access issues at the field level, but then we, when we talk about IHL, it goes also from the field level to higher policy levels and politics and circles and so forth. Would you, would you agree on this, that humanitarian diplomacy would happen in, in several different places at the same time? Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, it is, it is quite impressive that you have over 20 years of experience working with humanitarian issues, particularly in the field. And now when we focus on this aspect here, how does humanitarian diplomacy look like, particularly from a field perspective? Well, it's easy for me to describe it since I've been uh, in various countries in complex emergencies where humanitarian diplomacy was absolutely necessary to facilitate our work. Again, I would like to go in accordance with these four elements that I underlined. If we talk about the promotion of principles and um, the facilitation and training on IHL, we are constantly engaged in training different militaries that are deployed, including obviously the National Army, but also international deployments, including our own uh, Blue Helmets, um, about the adherence to international humanitarian law, human rights law, and the principles. Because they often, uh, if you look at um, the, the Blue Helmets, they often have in their mandate to facilitate humanitarian action. But they are not necessarily informed about how this should be done in order not to um, uh, make it difficult for humanitarians to access the population. So we constantly have trainings ongoing. If we talk about Mali, it's the National Army, it's MINUSMA, it's the G5, um, and we collaborate with OICAP and uh, EUTM uh, so that all the militaries that are deployed in the country have an understanding of the basic uh, principles of humanitarian action and the law that governs our um, activities. On the other hand, we also offer this to rebel groups um, because also they are in accordance with international law um, obliged to adhere uh, to that law, but you know, many of them don't know about it. So we do the same for the rebel groups and even militias that we have access to. And we have done that in Mali quite successfully and extensively all over the center and the north of the country. The second element um, I talked about earlier was um, negotiating presence. Um, sometimes, you know, parts of a country are held by a militia or by a rebel group or even by so-called jihadists uh, or terrorists. Um, OCHA has as the only UN entity the mandate to negotiate access with those interlocutors. So we are constantly engaged in, um, you know, building relationships, first of all, because you cannot imagine to call a leader, uh, a military leader somewhere and ask for access if you don't know that leader. And more importantly, that he doesn't know you. Um, so you have to build relationships, if you like, um, with those different representatives um, that are uh, opposing armed forces, 
um, um, and um, uh, that are holding um, particular parts of the country, and they are responsible in accordance with international law for the well-being of the citizens that are in that part of the country. So we have been able to negotiate access um, and presence of humanitarians even in areas that are otherwise difficult to access, for instance, for development partners. We have also done the same uh, to facilitate access of the population to go to basic social services, especially to the health centers. Um, it's not always successful, Sarah, uh, Sarah. Unfortunately, um, you know, you, you are confronted with people who are not necessarily um, following your arguments. So this is a long-term engagement uh, with many of um, the representatives of the various groups. And in a country like Mali, we have many. So it's an extreme effort to stay in contact um, with the different groups in the areas where displaced people are, um, refugees are, um, uh, and even host populations are, that are also in need um, of support. Um, the last point is to convince leaders. Um, you know, sometimes I'm astonished. Um, international humanitarian law, human rights law, and even the humanitarian principles um, are known at the highest level because everybody has signed, you know, or nearly everybody has signed the UN Charter, the Human Rights um, uh, Charter, and so on. But there is a lot that needs to be done to convince leaders um, to adhere, even if their country has signed um, you know, the relevant uh, law, international law, is not necessarily followed. I mean, you you see nearly every day um, in, um, in the media uh, that massacres have been committed, uh, that attacks um, that have been um, uh, happening in parts of the country, um, undertaken even by the so-called anti-terror um, uh, war, um, uh, community um, uh, are having impact um, on the civilians. Um, and so, you know, you have to convince those leaders again and again, and sometimes you have to take these issues to the human rights um, representatives in country to facilitate an investigation in what has happened. Because unfortunately we have had, whether you talk about Afghanistan, whether you talk about Iraq, whether you talk about Yemen and elsewhere, we always see that there is unfortunately um, uh, digression yeah. from, from what should be done. So these are the activities that humanitarians and especially OCHA is involved in. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a large uh, part of our work and it uh, contains a lot of um, uh, communication, uh, a lot of argumentation, a lot of discussion on mandates, a lot of discussion on the principles uh, to, um, if you like, convince uh, the leaders in place uh, to adhere. Uh, to, to the minimum uh, understanding of these uh, elements of law and principles that need to be followed. I can give you uh, maybe an example where 
um, in a country X, um, you know, decisions were made that a certain way to travel in country was no more allowed. Uh, you were not allowed to use motorbikes anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, motorbikes are a, a means of transport for the majority of the population, especially in the areas that are far away from health centers and, and schools and so on. And so we had together with NGOs uh, um, uh, undertaken uh, to have meetings uh, together with the humanitarian coordinator as well, uh, to have meetings to discuss this in order to revoke uh, this decision, which really had a very negative impact on the well-being of the population. Um, it took a while, uh, it took quite a long time, but in the end, um, uh, this decision was revoked um, and uh, we had some success in opening up, again, what I call access of the population to health centers and education and other basic social services. Right, right. Um, as you and I have previously discussed, that the engagement with the non-state armed groups is one particular characteristic of, of humanitarian diplomacy. And you were giving quite nice examples there of how has, how has that engagement looked in practice as well. But at the same time, humanitarians, as you are saying, are supposed to be adhering to these principles of neutrality and independence and so forth. And as you alluded, that OCHA is, is the only one who is mandated to, to coordinate uh, among these non-state actors as well. So in a sense, how, how do humanitarians balance this mismatch of these kind of humanitarian principles which are at the core of the humanitarian action for OCHA, but at the same time dealing with actors who who do uh, awful things to other people and who create these humanitarian needs and are the driving forces behind massacres and killings and whatnot? Well, first of all, um, you know, there comes the request for neutrality, um, where you have to be cognizant of the fact that horrible things are done by all sides in a war. You know, in a war, you do not have one side that is, you know, worse than another side. Um, unfortunately, the mechanism of war makes everybody a warrior. And that means, unfortunately, you know, bad things happen on all sides. So first of all, you have to go to see um, the different representatives, whether they from militias, whether they from rebel groups, whether they from signatory groups, because sometimes you have, like in Mali, you have a signed peace agreement. So that gives a certain part of your um, uh, engagement, um, uh, you know, a legitimacy uh, to, to engage with the 10 different groups that have signed under the two uh, groupings of platform and CMA, the peace accord, obviously it gives you much more legitimacy than to engage in a negotiation with, with let's say, representatives of clear um, uh, so-called terrorist groups or jihadist groups. Hmm. Um, to work with, with these different um, non-state armed groups, let's call them that, um, you have to, again, you have to build relationships. And that is important um, in order to be able to discuss issues that are really important and where you need the other side to listen to your argument 
and to eventually change their behavior. Um, in order to do that, um, you, you need to develop not only that relationship by visiting people in their fiefdoms, but you have to offer them, for instance, training opportunities, um, discussion groups. Um, um, as I said, we are constantly engaged in, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, all sorts of people on the international humanitarian law and, and principles um, and human rights law. So you go through not only the leaders of these groups, um, because unfortunately there seems to be often a high rotation um, uh, on these non-state armed groups. Um, there seems to be also a constant division and reconfiguration of various groups. So you have to have a certain flexibility with who to talk. Uh, you might talk to somebody, uh, let's say, in the capital city, but since these groups often do not work like the military, already, if you want to have access far away from the capital, somebody else might be in charge. So you have to have links to the various geographical zones, maybe I can call it, uh, to facilitate uh, to facilitate. Um, uh, that type of uh, negotiation for access, because that's what we do mainly. If we engage in negotiations with these groups, it's to facilitate access, facilitate presence, facilitate populations to reach health centers, education, and, and other basic social services. So it is a very complicated matter, um, because as I said, you know, we usually have uh, deployments in a country, let's say for two, three, four years. It's the exception that somebody stays a very long time. Now, relationships are not built in a year, really. Mm. And, and so, you know, that poses a problem sometimes when there is high rotation, especially in the people that are responsible for this, like the civil military coordinator or the field coordinator and even the head of office. Um, so that can pose a problem. But, um, you know, if you are for a longer period of time in a country and you travel a lot in country and you meet the people where they are and you have tea with them and you discuss with them and you are able to build, uh, you know, I would say even a human relationship with them, it is much easier to achieve, you know, um, adherence to some of your requests if you are known and if you are trusted, obviously. And so that takes a lot of time, you know, to, to travel into all these areas. I can tell you that is the majority of time um, that I have spent in some of these countries was to go to the field in order to the deep field, as we call it, you know, to, right, to develop right. these relationships because to go to somebody and just to demand something and that person doesn't know you, you will never get Hmm. never get anywhere and so unfortunately you need a bit of courage because you know there is a risk obviously uh, but you know that courage uh, is needed when you are in this type of uh, job um, and so yeah between the training um, um, you know and the discussions and the meeting of people in their fiefdoms and discussing at the highest level at the middle level at the geographical zone level um, and, you know, that that is what we do and that is what facilitates access.
That is excellent insight and that is very important to discuss also uh, in dealing with these um, non-state armed groups. Because at the end of the day, when we look at the data, approximately 80% of uh, the world's humanitarian needs are driven by conflicts. And these conflicts are much more localized uh, compared to previous decades, if we think about these kind of histories of conflict and histories of war. Uh, and I know that you, as a head of office, have been the head negotiator in many of these negotiations and dealing with these kind of stakeholders. So there's a very rich uh, experience that you can offer. But uh, there is one more issue that I wish us to discuss in today's episode, uh, which is the issue of gender. And particularly looking back on your career and noting you being both a woman at the directorial level of the United Nations, as well as heading field offices, I'm dying to know, uh, do you think that gender matters in humanitarian diplomacy? Well, absolutely gender matters. I mean, uh, first of all, you have to look at who are the beneficiaries, because uh, so far we haven't talked about them. The majority of our beneficiaries in these crises are unfortunately women and children. The displaced in countries usually made up 60-70% of women and children. And who can better talk to a woman than another woman. Even if you are not capable to speak the language, you know, you can get a translator and women will open up to you much easier than, um, you know, talking to men, uh, especially in cultures where they've been brought up, you know, not to talk about their needs to men. So I think, uh, you know, from that perspective, a woman has an important role to play. Secondly, I have participated in the peace talks um, in Algiers where unfortunately very few women participated. And you might remember the fight we had for the Liberian women to participate in the mm. peace negotiations that took place at the time. Um, it is absolutely important that women who are impacted by what is going on, the conflict, the war, um, uh, that they are included in peace negotiations and in all the structures that are put in place after the signature to make sure that these recommendations are actually put into practice and realized. Um, I still remember about one and a half, two years ago, a group of women uh, in Mali wrote a letter to the then SRSG, um, um, Anadif, um, uh, to say that uh, really, uh, if you look at the structures of the CSA, uh, women are not included. Um, you know, there's various uh, committees that are set up um, uh, under any uh, implementation of a peace accord. And, uh, you know, I remember that letter very clearly because it said, uh, for each of the structures, zero women, one woman, zero women, but 55 men, 60 men, <laughs> you know, and so on. <laughs> So the difference was incredible. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, the participation of women uh, in peace negotiations can uh, also address the needs of women better because men, even if they say we represent the women, it's not possible. It, it is not possible that a man represents the needs of women. Uh, women will have needs that a man doesn't even imagine. Um, and so, you know, uh, they are half of the population, they are half of the sky, as we say. So, you know, they have to participate um, in this. Uh, women also have an impact, you know, even on the ambience in a room. 
uh, if you want to talk peace and you have a few women in the room, it can sometimes bring the, the, the conflictual climate down. Um, uh, people tend to relax a little bit more. There's been even research on this, you know, and I know uh, that this is the case. Even if women don't talk, they have an impact on the ambience in, uh, in a room. So I think, you know, it's without question um, that women who are impacted by the conflict, who play a role um, in their country, uh, need to be included uh, in this. But it's not without problems because um, let's look at the, the different levels. Uh, first of all, we need the political will because there is women. There is women who are interested to play that role. Um, they might not be able to speak uh, the, the language that is required or requested, but we have translators, you know, we can make sure that, uh, that they are facilitated. Um, we have also in the recruitment processes within, um, you know, NGOs and the UN, um, it can be challenging to recruit women into um, conflict areas because uh, women are still playing a major role um, and often the more important role in raising children and supporting family life. So a woman who does go to a non-family um, duty station will leave her husband behind with the children maybe in the next country, which is more stable, but she will only go there every eight weeks. A man is doing that because his wife is carrying, you know, this burden to maintain, you know, the family while he is absent. Um, it's still, I would say, uh, in many cases, the exception that men are ready to do that. Um, and then thirdly, uh, you have to look at the recruitment in the countries where you are, because as you remember, in the World Humanitarian Summit, um, there was one recommendation to localize much more. And I am fully uh, supporting this uh, requirement because, I mean, the more local people we can engage, the more capacity we have to communicate. Because in any African country, there's at least 10, 15, sometimes up to 200 languages you know, that are spoken. And if some of our staff speaks those languages, that will facilitate uh, a lot. Uh, but if you look in country, often the countries that we are in, women have even less access to education and training and studies at university and so on. And so they don't meet the requirements in some cases. And then there's also cultural issues uh, that women who... Uh, join, for instance, an office, will leave you once they are married, uh, because then their husbands uh, often insist that they stay at home um, and they don't go to work. So um, I have seen that in, in, in some of my recruitment processes where I've recruited local women who then disappeared. And, uh, you know, so it's a challenge um, which needs to be addressed at the higher level with political will, political will to actually look um, at including women in peace talks, for instance, um, but also political will to facilitate access to education training um, uh, to women uh, who would otherwise be useful, um, not only in this field, also in the development sphere. 
uh, but who are not as often um, given the opportunity uh, to go to school. If you look at literacy rates uh, in, in some of these countries, there's also a huge difference uh, between literacy of men and women, just to start with the basics. Absolutely. I think that's a very comprehensive answer, and I know that we are unfortunately running out of time, but I still want to ask one more follow-up question, in a sense, to combine these two themes that we've just discussed. So you as the head of office and the main negotiator with the non-state armed groups, how you being a woman and entering into that situation and scenario um, has affected the situation or the negotiations themselves? Do you have any short reflections here? I mean, um, I have to say, um, working in these cultures where I have been, it has helped me enormously that I am an older woman and that I am a mother of six. This has always given me an enormous credibility uh, among uh, the people that I've met. Um, when they knew that I have, if you like, fulfilled um, a kind of a female um, uh, uh, female um, experience that they expected. Um, uh, and so that has given me uh, a lot of credibility in many of these situations. Um, it has given me credibility that I was ready to go to the areas where the danger was. Um, I did not meet leaders only in, in the capital city. Um, and um, I do remember the first time I arrived in Menaka, I was actually, we had negotiated access for me and I was protected together with the director uh, who had arrived from New York by about 80 armed men who, you know, came from different backgrounds, but couldn't speak the language. It was a very bizarre situation, I can tell you. And when we came then to the office, where we met the chief negotiators on the other side. Thankfully, they spoke um, French and we could negotiate with them and nothing happened. But, you know, you have to show, and that particular arrival has given me a lot of um, uh, credibility uh, to the leaders that, you know, were active in that area. So sometimes you have to really overcome also, you know, it's a mix, uh, as I, as you see, you know, on the one hand, uh, you, I have used my femininity, you know, being a mother, um, you know, distributing tea, you know, that type yeah. of thing. And on the other hand, I have done things that, that actually more men, uh, are doing, you know, than women going to those areas and taking that risk and being that uh, example, if you like. Um, and obviously people speak, you know, uh, across geographical zones. And so, you know, information flies and that has, uh, that has helped me a lot. What I would like to say at the end is really, um, you know, this humanitarian diplomacy we have talked about the need to see um, much more the political dimension, because in many of these situations, what is lacking is political will. Mm. The political will, as I said, you know, the Human Rights Charter, international humanitarian law, the principles, everything is there. And at least the governments have signed up on, you know, these documents. Um, but we need to see much more the political dimension 
and we have to push much more for practical approaches if we look at a situation like we have in the Sahel to combat corruption because to address the underlying causes will help to retreat uh, humanitarian interventions and to advance development, um, reinforce governments, the governments, deliver basic social services, protect civilians really, um, and support reconciliation efforts. So I would say we need a change of strategy from combating combatants. We have to talk and we have to use humanitarian diplomacy and we have to use um, common sense to find practical ways to address these underlying causes so that humanitarian interventions become less uh, necessary. Excellent. I think that is a fantastic note to end off with uh, this episode. Ute, thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, today. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Sala. Fantastic. And for our listeners, thank you also for joining uh, as well. And stay tuned for more upcoming episodes on the Humanitarian Diplomacy podcast.